This week's episode looks at Operation Alert, which was a huge civil defence exercise in America in the 50s and 60s. Now, when Britain did its little exercises for nuclear war, it was normally restricted to military and political sorts in their bunkers and offices. But the Americans, naturally, did it much bigger and brasher and bolder than us. Operation Alert was massive. It happened across the whole country and involved members of the public too. Everyone was roped into participating and in some cases, if you refused, you could end up in jail. But you'll notice the title of this episode is Operation Alert and the Angry Mothers. So, in the latter part of the episode, we'll look at how two young mothers in New York City risked jail so they could protest against the civil defence exercise. And we'll see how their nervous protest grew and grew until it showed how ridiculous Operation Alert was and the whole silly, bombastic display was brought to an end in 1962. But first, this... Yes, I have good news. If you follow me on Twitter, you'll know already, but allow me the joy of saying it again here. I have a book deal. I'll be writing a social history of how ordinary people prepared for nuclear war, and it's due out in 2021 from Bodley Head. The working title is Attack Warning Red, uh, and I am delighted and so glad to share the news with you. So thank you, everyone who supports my work by listening to this podcast, by leaving reviews, by sharing it on social media, etc. And of course, a special thanks to those who support me on Patreon each month. Some of my patrons will be having their names printed in the acknowledgement section of the book when it's out, and will get a free signed copy. So if you want to support me on Patreon and get those rewards, please take a look at my page, which you'll find at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And you can support me not only in producing this podcast, but on the research and the writing of my first book. But for now, let's get back to business. We're looking at Operation Alert and it took place every year in the summer. It was basically a mock nuclear attack and it gave everyone involved a chance to run through all their plans and procedures, have a trial run for the end of the world basically, make sure everyone knew what they were supposed to be doing if and when the time came. So Operation Alert went on for weeks and weeks. It would see all the top bigwigs in government be evacuated to their secret bunker hideouts. So that includes the president. It went as high as Eisenhower. Even he would have to stop what he was doing and head out to the bunker. Uh, The local civil defence guys would be testing their own plans and procedures. In May 1958, for example, the civil defence agency were very happy to report at, at the end of Operation Alert for that year that the air raid warning had been sent out to and acknowledged by all states within 2 minutes and 48 seconds. So procedures and plans were rehearsed and tested. That's all quite standard, I suppose, but Operation Alert differed in that there were 15 minutes of it in which the public were supposed to take part. Here's a news clip covering Operation Alert from 1954. This is Times Square, New York, prior to the start of a civil defence drill, highlighting Operation Alert. 
drilled as part of the survival phase of the fourth such test held in this country. Less than two minutes after the takeover signal, the streets were cleared. Times Square is deserted. Mayor Wagner praised the work of civil defense officials and the cooperation of the public. Other theoretical bombs were dropped on cities from coast to coast. In Chicago, factory workers quit their machines to seek shelter until the all-clear sounds. Tens of millions across the nation take part in the vast nuclear attack exercise. So Operation Alert trundled on for weeks and weeks, with everyone behind the scenes doing their rehearsals. But when it reached the stage where the fake nuclear attack was incoming, the sirens would sound. And those members of the public who were out and about in a public place at that time were supposed to join in, to run and to take cover, to get off the streets and dive into the nearest designated public fallout shelter. Of course, the sound of the nuclear sirens suddenly wailing on a summer afternoon would be enough to (laughs) drive you mad with terror, so Operation Alert was well publicised. Those cities which were participating, it was normally about 60 cities across America, they knew it was happening and they were prepared for it, so it wouldn't be a terrible shock to hear the siren. If you'd been following the instructions and the public information campaign, you knew it was going to be happening. So if you were out and about, doing your shopping, etc, and you heard those sirens at that moment, you had to drop what you were doing and very obediently and very calmly head for the nearest signposted shelter. There are famous pictures, of course, of New York City during Operation Alert. Photos where the population have obeyed those instructions and cleared the streets and the shops, dashing underground to take shelter for 15 minutes. There are photos, for example, of an empty Lincoln Tunnel and of a silent Macy's department store and those big, broad, famous streets, of course, utterly empty, except for perhaps a lone policeman or civil defence worker in his helmet. Indeed, New York took Operation Alert so seriously that they actually made it compulsory to participate. You weren't just taking part out of um, a sense of duty. You were obliged to take part when you heard those sirens. If you didn't, if you refused to take cover, you could be arrested and then subject to a $500 fine and up to a year in jail. So they were very serious about this. Operation Alert was not some kind of jokey exercise, some kind of dad's army outing. It wasn't a half-hearted practice run or an excuse for an easy day at the office for those civil defence workers. Operation Alert was tightly woven into America's ability to defend itself or its perceived ability to defend itself um, if a nuclear attack was ever incoming. And that was because it was deemed essential that the population, if nuclear attack did happen, stay calm and organised. Now, I believe that's utter nonsense. How on earth can any government expect its people to be cool and calm as a nuclear holocaust is bursting over their heads? Nonetheless, that was the script. Educate yourself about civil defence so that when those damn Ruskies come, we will be calm and clean, neat, smooth, wholesome Americans, and we'll know exactly what to do, and we will not lose our heads. Operation Alert told people what to do, and allowed them the luxury of practising it, so that you could perhaps draw some kind of comfort from knowing that, if it did happen, 
On paper, at least, you knew what you were supposed to do. You'd run through the drill a few times. Whether or not it would work on the day is almost irrelevant. The fact is you can draw some kind of comfort and pride and security from knowing that you are aware and equipped and knowledgeable of what to do when you hear that siren. Operation Alert, of course, didn't just stand alone. It wasn't just from where the public stood. There are 15 minutes during which you run into a shelter, then you pop back up again and go back about your normal lives. The Operation Alert was part of a wider civil defence campaign, of course, which educated the public on, on fallout protection, on how to build a shelter in the garden, of how to prepare a larder full of the appropriate food and supplies, of tuning in to the Conrad emergency radio broadcasts. The idea was to prepare Americans and give them the info they needed to at least make a go of it if it happened. It gave information and it allowed you the small comfort of practising. Arguably, without information and without practice, a vacuum might be created and that vacuum could easily be filled with rumour and panic. And it was tremendously important to keep panic at bay. Val Peterson of the Civil Defence Agency said that mass panic could, quote, produce a chain reaction more deeply destructive than any explosive known. Mass panic, not the A-bomb, may be the easiest way to win a battle, the cheapest way to win a war. So if we're being kind to Operation Alert, we could at least say that it might have helped keep panic and worry at bay for some people. There's no doubt that Running through drills and procedures and step-by-step instructions can lend some kind of comfort to some types of worried personality. Of course, the Soviets knew all about Operation Alert and they were ridiculing it. The New York Times reported in June 1955 that the Soviet newspapers were calling it War hysteria in USA. And they presented Operation Alert as a sly way of preparing the population to accept greater expenditure on nuclear weapons. Pravda said, according to this New York Times report, quote, This great dramatisation, with all its noise and fuss, is obviously aimed at intimidating people of American cities, making them believe in the inevitability of atomic war, and reconciling themselves to colossal expenditures for armaments. Now let's turn to the angry mothers. When Operation Alert of 1959 came round, two young mothers, Mary Charmatt and Janice Smith, had decided they'd had enough. They were terrified of the growing threat of nuclear annihilation and also of what the future held for the young children. And they felt Operation Alert was useless and harmful. So they both decided to make a small, inoffensive, ladylike protest. These were young housewives, of course, of the 1950s. Calling them ladylike is not any kind of insult or is meant to denigrate them. In fact, it's the opposite. It shows how courageous they were because they were making this protest, they were operating in a world which thought 
you're a young mother, you should be demure and quiet and peaceful and you should be at home. You should not be pushing your way into New York City to make protests against the government. So these two young mothers went into the city on the day of Operation Alert to make their protest. They didn't know one another. They weren't together. They just both happened to have this idea on the same day. So, separately, they went into the city with their children and they quietly sat down and when the sirens blared, they refused to take cover. Of course, New York was one of the cities or one of the states which had made it illegal to refuse to take cover. Doing so could land you in jail. So Janice went to City Hall Park and sat down on a bench. The other end of the park was filled with the tough and hardened and well-known protesters and they had a scrum of media and cops all around them waiting to see if they would refuse to take cover, waiting to see if they'd then be arrested and dragged off to the jail. Janice uh, quietly sat down at the other end of the park and soon she and her children were spotted and the journalists and police ran over to her. She politely told them she would not take cover and said, I refuse to act like a desert rat and run. All this drill does is frighten children and birds. I will not raise my children to go underground. Meanwhile, Mary was doing the same. She sat down on Broadway and gently rocked her baby, Jimmy, in his pram. That morning, before leaving for the city, she had withdrawn money from her savings account, expecting to be arrested and making sure she could pay for her bail. Here's a quote from Mary. I pushed Jimmy's stroller back and forth to keep him happy and gritted my teeth in determination not to become a coward and return home. The sirens started blowing. I sat. Then a man came to me and Jimmy and he demanded that I take shelter. I said, I cannot take shelter. I do not believe in this. He said, you're nuts. Another civil defence man came over to argue sense to me and he screamed over the sirens and I just kept repeating, this is wrong. I refuse to take cover. He was terrified of me and I of him. He walked over and said, Lady, we're going to give you a ticket. I said, give me a ticket. That was the least of my worries. The next day, the ladies read about one another in the newspapers and they managed to make contact. Of course, there was no Google or Twitter in those days, so they had to go through the phone book, calling all the appropriately named households until they found one another. They met and decided to try and find other New York mothers who shared their fears and who might want to get together next year to make a similar protest at the following Operation Alert. In six months, they had found 50 women and also a handful of men. So they all gathered the next year in City Hall Park for the 1960 Operation Alert. There were now 500 people in the protest. And, according to the historian D. Garrison, they played on their image as mothers, bringing to the park their many children and a bunch of toys, teddies, trikes and playpens, because they knew the police wouldn't be keen to trample across toys to drag away young mothers in white gloves and pretty dresses, pulling babies from their arms. But what about the poor men who were there to protest with them? They've got no such protection. Well, there were so many babies there that day that any single blokes who attended were given some of the excess babies to hold. So here you go, guys. Help yourselves. 
hold up a baby and protest. Here's another quote from Mary Charmatt um, describing the protest that day, and it's taken from Dee Garrison's work. Over 500 friends gathered at City Hall Park. Many men came down. Our skirts gave them courage. We loaned out extra babies to bachelors. The sirens sounded. We stood. Mothers with children. Fathers with mutual deep concerns. Bachelors who had hopes and borrowed a baby. Maiden aunts who had no children but were taking care of the rest of us. We stood. There was dead silence throughout the park. And of course later when a self-important civil defence worker squealed at them that they were all going to be arrested, the crowd cheered and applauded. But the police did make arrests, though they were obliged to, of course. It was the law, it's their duty to carry it out. But they didn't just wade in and trample over all the toys. They carefully selected 26 people for their for arrest. And yes, they singled out the men and the women who wore trousers. Dee Garrison says in her great book, Bracing for Armageddon, that these women, quote, relied on the image of enraged motherhood to win public sympathy for their cause. And in doing so, they turned Operation Alert and Civil Defence into the largest mass peace action held in the United States since the 1930s. So with the ridicule, the expense, the upheaval and of course the growing protests which had spilled beyond the usual suspects of beatniks and started taking in nice young mothers in white gloves and lacy hats, the government eventually called a halt to Operation Alert. I invite you to take a look at my Twitter account where I've shared some great photos of the protests sent to me by the American civil defence researcher Bill Gearhart, who tweets under the name Conorad640-1240. So you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell. See pictures of all those young mothers in the park with their nippers and their trikes and toys. See people being dragged off by the police. Ask me any questions, of course, you may have on Twitter or through my website, juliemcdowell.com. And before we go, let me say thank you to all my patrons and remind you that you can support the podcast and all my nuclear research and my book by donating some money each month. If you want to do that, take a look at my Patreon page. You'll find that at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And let me give a special thank you to the following patrons. Arika, Lucy Stegervald, Jonathan Abelins, Peter Mars... Andrew Key, Sam Marco, Richard Grundy, Dave Marks, Alan Christie, Helen McHale, Douglas Greenshields, Colin McGee, Sean Milson, Brian Outlaw, Damian Ryan, Peter Lee, Eamon Coyle, Julie Eek, Sarah Brassington, Nick Packham, Tara Moore, Simon Reid, Laura and Rebecca Curtis-Moss, Lynette Walsh, Christopher Creva, Richard Lewis, Adam Spink, Ian McCulloch, Linda Woolnuff, Kevin Butter, Simon Allison, Sean Judge, Paul Maxwell-Walters, Wynne Grant, Ben Capper, Mary Freer, Phil Catling, Steve Sace, Claire Brennan, Paul Jonathan Viner and Gordy McNair. That list gets longer every week. Um, thank you sincerely to everyone who supports the podcast. And I hope you'll join me next week when we'll come back with another topic. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.